Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, hi, and welcome. I am your host, Emigan Awardner, and in my nearly 20-year career as a beauty and health writer, I have interviewed a lot of people, supermodels, entrepreneurs, authors, celebrities, and doctors, and many of these conversations had a real impact on me, and I'd come away feeling inspired, excited, informed, and really empowered, and at the back of my mind, I'd always think, I wish I could just publish the tape so people could really feel that conversation. Well, on this podcast, you get to feel the conversation. I talk with experts, guests, and a few friends who I hope will inspire, inform, and empower you, and maybe also challenge you, whether you're looking for self-help, self-improvement, beauty advice, health insights, business know-how, or just some good old-fashioned life advice and a bit of a laugh. It's all here. Welcome to the show. My guest on this episode of the podcast is content creator and businesswoman Lorna Lux. Lorna has a huge presence on social media. She has over 1 million followers on Instagram, but she's also a really savvy businesswoman and a real people person. We met last year and she is one of those people that has the ability to walk into a room and make everyone feel comfortable and at ease just instantly. It's just, it's a total gift. Lorna and I actually have quite a few friends in common and people speak so, so highly of her. And I actually only met her for the first time last year, but when I met her, I completely understood why. She's fun, she's open, and she's really smart. I wanted to have her on the show, but when I started to learn about her background as an air hostess in sales and how she transitioned into becoming a lifestyle content creator, I just knew her story would be fascinating and would add value to you, my most excellent listeners. In this episode, we talk about her early life, her plans to escape and create a comfortable life for herself, what she learned from working with customers both in store and also at 30,000 feet as an air hostess, and how her husband was instrumental in her pursuing her purpose and passion. We also discuss mental health and how a battle with an eating disorder had a very real and devastating impact on her life. And for that reason, I am including a trigger warning as we speak very candidly about this and some listeners may find it upsetting. On the other side of that difficult time, Lorna has built an incredible profile and business. The one thing I've heard time and time again about Lorna is how impressive her work ethic is, how she's a real grafter and puts so much emphasis on getting the job done and getting it done well. I really hope you enjoy this conversation. This episode was recorded over the internet during the lockdown period here in the UK, but rest assured when we're allowed, I'll be asking Lorna back on the show for a face-to-face to chat over some chilled rosé where we'll capture some crystal clear audio for you. All the links to Lorna will be in the show notes, which can be found wherever it is that you are streaming or downloading this episode. But without any further ado, please join me in welcoming Lorna Lux onto The Emma Gunn Show. Lorna Lux. Oh, Oh, this is exciting. 
Well, do you know what's really lovely is that I, it's become a little bit of a ritual of mine in lockdown to get ready with you. Oh, I love that. Do you know, it's something that I obviously haven't done before. So before lockdown, I never even got ready with anyone. <laughs> but I like <laughs> you sitting there in your dressing gown, doing your makeup with your hair, not blow dried or anything. It's a real, it's a really nice constant. Yeah, and I think actually having no makeup, stripping it back has made me strip back what I talk about as well. So I've become a lot more raw and a lot more honest, if you like, just about everything. So that's been quite good for me. It's been quite cathartic, is how I'd describe it. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. I think what well, I think this whole experience has been, but I do think that's so let's just dig in, shall we? Mm-hmm. You have over a million followers on it on Instagram. So you have this massive platform. And how long have you been on social media? I actually looked back the other day and I think I joined Instagram in 2014. But actually, I wasn't really doing anything on it. At first, I was a viewer. And I I would say to anyone that joins a platform like Instagram, you probably should just be a voyeur at first, just to understand the mechanics of it and read the room a little bit. And then I think in 2015, that's when I really started to tuck in and I started to post daily. And it became quite an obsession how I would describe it I just loved it I joined Instagram meetups and I did so many kind of you know coffee mornings with other IJs IJs and it was like my escapism really and I really loved it I got really into it and so I suppose that's why it took off for me because I was so heavily involved in it and was it just an organic thing of there was no business plan around it. It was just... Oh, like, oh, yeah, it was very much a hobby. Do you know, I never saw it as a business. So even when I had... I reckon I had 130-something thousand followers before anybody messaged me and said, can we gift you something? Or can we... Would you promote something? And I never... I didn't understand it. I don't come from a marketing background, so I was a bit naive, shall we say to what the value was of my community and because I was so chatty my engagement was really high so I suspect to brands that were coming to my page they were probably thinking oh we can capitalize on this page we're going back a few years now this is before Instagram became the business that it is now Mm. and it's still very much just lots of people a little bit like Tumblr or MySpace it was more you know an intimate kind of gathering of people so yeah Do you remember who it was who first came to you and said, we'd like to collaborate with you? I think it was Triangle Bikini. Do you remember those? They were like, a little bit like, who's the watch people, Daniel Wellington? They were one of those brands that ultimately, they built their entire marketing strategy around Instagram. Um, And I think Triangle Bikini was all about gifting. So everybody was gifted a Triangle Bikini. And I remember in my community, we were all comparing to one another who'd been sent a Triangle Bikini and who hadn't. Um, I think I did a flat lay with it. I don't even think I put it on. <laughs> but yeah, gosh. It's when you start to think about stuff like that and I think, God, like how far have I come from then? Yeah. And how chuffed I was that I was getting a free bikini. I know. And now, goodness me, because you hit a million this year, didn't you? Well, it's a funny one, this, because I hit a million last year, but I never announced it. So I know there's a big thing, isn't there, on the community to kind of say, yay, I've you know, got this. But historically, I've never, I think I, the only time I ever spoke about my following was when I hit 30K, which was a long time ago. So I just felt a bit awkward about, I don't know if that's an age thing. I feel like 
because I'm in my thirties, you almost get to that point where you're not, you feel a bit guilty for celebrating stuff. So I didn't want to like be going to people, yeah, look how popular I am. So I never spoke about it. So then in like the January, February, people were obviously coming and looking at my page. And then with like, even the other day, someone messaged me and said, oh, well done for hitting a million. And I thought, oh, I'm not going to say that it's been a while because it doesn't matter, does it? But yeah, I'm not thinking about it. <laughs> well, let's retrace our footsteps a little bit because uh, we were just talking before we started recording about the first time we met, which was actually only about seven months ago. Yeah, it was, yeah, over a little cheeky vino. Uh, mine was a spicy margarita. Like it that. was, wasn't it? I think I was the only one not drinking a cocktail that night. I really learned a lot about the people there that night. <laughs> oh, good. I hope I hope it was all really lovely and good. But obviously, I've been following you for a while, and I think because I came from magazines, uh, I obviously know that crowd really well. So because I worked in the media, I was always very much part of that scene. And then with influencers and bloggers it was like a whole new crop of people who had a way bigger influence than any of us magazine lot (laughs) and I was and it's always a real delight when you meet someone who has such huge influence like you do and you're just dead normal and really friendly and really open (laughs) I don't know because I think I've said this to you before I think that because I've had proper jobs all my life I've never been the boss so I've done 20 years of normal jobs really of customer service and I was an air hostess and stuff so this for me was kind of like being an air hostess in terms of having to look after lots of people I've got a lot of people that message me every day so I just look at them like my passengers and there's no difference to me it's this that you know I still offer a service I still provide information but everything else is still the same um yeah it's a yeah I don't know why I'm still normal maybe I shouldn't I don't know I just can't imagine being any other way no please don't change please don't change it. <laughs> yeah. so so let's go back because you have always grafted that's the one thing I hear from all of our mutual friends like even before we met it was like oh Lorna's really lovely she's a real grafter where does that come from and when you got into being an air hostess what was the ambition have you always been quite ambitious and a doer yeah I have I think I've always been ambitious to have stuff my like formative years when I was a kid, um, my mum and dad got divorced, so we had to leave our kind of semi-detached nice house in a nice road, and we had to move in with my nan and granddad. And we lived on um, a council estate in Sale. And because I spoke differently to the kids, they didn't really want to hang out with me. So I realised very early on that I didn't want to be where I was. That I was going to get escape one day, and I would get out. And so when my um, obviously me and mum were living with my nan and granddad mum used the opportunity as well as working full time to get a degree so my early years I observed my mum educating herself for a better life and getting a career so I knew I wanted a, I wanted not to be a career girl but I wanted to do I wanted to get out of that kind of estate and that's kind of what I did as soon as I was 17 I went to uni and I never came home after that <laughs> And I did everything I could to not come home. Even after my degree, I didn't know what I was going to do. And I, that's when I started working for Virgin because my mum had said, you're going to have to come home now. I can't afford to pay for you to be in Newcastle anymore. And I remember saying to my mate, I'm not doing that. I need to get a job that takes me away. And that's when I applied to Virgin and, and moved to Brighton. <laughs> yeah. So all my life, I've been looking for ways to get away, really, to run away from reality. 
and certainly the Instagram world is about that, isn't it? It's all about escapism. And, and you can provide a really nice, safe place. Yeah, really like, yeah, it's almost for me as a safe place. So a lot of the feedback I get mostly every day really is that people come to me and they know that there's not going to be any aggression, that I'm not going to try and trigger people or talk about things that are too heavy, but equally I'm going to acknowledge things going on. I've always tried to be quite level because I know what triggers me, so I'm conscious of it. I think when you've been triggered yourself, you know not to trigger other people. So I think certainly having mental health issues in the past has made me, um, I don't know, more empathetic person on the internet, if that makes sense. Which probably goes back to why you say, oh, you know, when we first met, you were really normal. Because I have been in a place where I felt very low and needed people to step up for me. So my constant now is to always be, you know, kind and lovely to people because I know that one day I might need that back. That's how I kind of operate. My, my default, if you like. That's really lovely. Because I think, and we will come on to mental health issues as well, because I think it's a really interesting conversation. I've been really open on this podcast about my experiences. But I think... Um, Sometimes what I've observed is when people have a really big following, they want to be seen a certain way or when people present themselves on social media, they want to be seen a certain way and they want people to react to them in a certain way. And if they don't get that, that's when the prickliness starts. Mm. And I think you make it very easy for people to see you as they find you or to find you as they see you, I should say. Yeah, no, definitely. If you follow me on social media and you meet me in real life, there's literally no difference, like literally none. (laughs) I am very honest. Um, and I don't mind that. I think the weakness, showing your weakness, showing your vulnerability is what makes you human. And actually, that's what I'm attracted to in other people. So that's what I try and give. Mm-hmm. And I sometimes it's in my own detriment where I kind of show my vulnerability and then think, oh, did I really want to tell people about that? But yeah, I've done yeah. that in my, I think because I've got a good support network, my mum's really supportive. My best mate is, um, my husband, obviously. So having those kind of strong characters in my life, I have a lot of acquaintances, but I don't have many close friends. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly because of that, I feel very protected. It's like I've got a nice little shell around me. And that's what gives me that ability to be so vulnerable in my business because yeah. I know that I have that kind of wall at home to escape it, if you like. That's really nice. What did you, if you were um, so keen to get out, what uh, to to run away not run away but what what did you study at university so I went to uni I was in it was a bit of a drama but I went to uni to do classical piano and then when I got there I realized that well a my my piano teacher told me my hands weren't big enough so I was never going to be a classical um concert pianist and I wasn't really interested in that anyway (laughs) Um, I just wanted to like you know hang out and drink in the student union but what I think that's normal (laughs) I mean I just wanted to go away I wanted to escape so I wasn't there really for the right reasons perhaps but what I did decide was that quickly I couldn't really do anything with the music degree because I wasn't good enough I was surrounded by such incredible talented people and actually I think I just wangled my way into this degree and I couldn't I knew I wasn't good enough and I'm, I'm a classic Leo so I have to be good at whatever I do. Um, so I was like a little lion and just kind of stepped back and went, no, I need to do something else. So I ended up doing English Lit in the end at the same uni. They let me switch courses. Nice. Um, and that was good for me because my mum had done English um, 
her degree you know later in life so I'd kind of done her degree with her so it was very easy for me to just kind of all the books I'd read it was just an easy degree in that way yeah yeah um so it was just a bit of a piss up for me really I spent four years just getting drunk I had a job at Curry's um selling TVs I was a real saleswoman from a very early age I think and yeah I just well, kind of you're a good saleswoman because I can imagine you were a good saleswoman well, I think the best thing about sales is that you can't sell a lie. So whatever you're talking about, you've got to find a point of honesty. Um, and I think as well, it's quite disarming when people hear a, a colloquial, like a northern accent. So I was in Newcastle, obviously very northern. Uh, but because I was northern, they trusted me in a way. And I found that since living down south, people tend to trust northerners more. We sound more honest. Even in adverts, we've got mutual friends that do voiceovers for ads. And it's always the Northerners that get the jobs. There's something about it that I don't know why that is. I'm sure there's some historical reasons why. But yeah, I and when I sold TVs, I would always be really honest about it, and I never told lies about stuff. And it's worked in my gut. It always worked for me. I always got good sales anyway. Don't know why. Did it help you understand and read lots of different types of people? Because obviously, if you're in Curry. Anyone could come to the street and want to buy it. Yeah, definitely. I think being able to understand people is probably the the biggest skill of all, isn't it? Being able to read the room and be observate. I'm a great observer. Um, And yeah, I I think most of that I learned at Virgin, actually, not at Curry's. Okay. I I definitely started picking those skills up at Curry's, shall we say. I properly practiced them and realised them. I realised the power of disarming somebody and seeing them as a human and as an equal and putting, rather than expecting them to come to my level, I will always come to whatever level they are at, whether they are above me or below. And I think when you can get on that level playing field, that's when you really start to get on with someone and they'll respect you and, and alike and whatnot. So that's kind of what I learned at Virgin. Oh, okay. So right, let's, so end of university and then we'll be literally straight into... I literally, I think my birthday was on the 4th uh, of August. July, oh, August. And then I had my interview on the 6th and my mum paid for my flight to Gatwick and it was like X Factor and I got in this cab. Uh, this girl was like, you going to the, you going to the version interview? I must have looked like a dolly even before I'd even got the job. And I was like, yeah. She was like, me too, come on, we'll share a cab to the interview. She had done it four times before. She was like, no one gets in first time, so just stick with me, kid. I'll get you through this interview. And we got through the whole day. It was like X Factor, so you know they separate the rooms. And we kept halfway through the day, they would split you up and split you up, and you'd come into the room and they'd be like, right, you got through, everyone else has been sent home. So it started with 30 of us and it ended with four of us. And at the end of the day, it was me and this girl that I'd met at the beginning and two other girls. And, oh, it was awful because, like, two, a month later, we all got our letters and she rang me and she was like, I didn't get in, did you? And I was like, I did. I felt so guilty. But I, I knew, I knew I'd got that job on the day. I just knew, you know, you get that gut feeling. I just thought, I've got this. And it was the best decision. What did they ask you to do? Like, what were the elimination stages? Lots of, you know, we want you to entertain the passengers. Imagine you've been, the, the plane's been suspended on the runway for three hours and the kids are getting really riled and it's a full Orlando and all the families are really exhausted. How are you going to entertain the kids? 
and me and the girl that had done it four interviews before was like, right, I've got this one. We had this one last time. So she knew all those things that I needed. She got me through it basically. Um, but I think that the crucial bit for both was why she maybe didn't get through what I did. It was just that interview at the end and that kind of having that interview confidence that I'd picked up being at uni. University is a great place to grow your confidence because it doesn't matter where you come from, you have to mix with people from all walks of life and cultures and classes. And although I've been come from a very underprivileged class, a lot of my mates were kind of posh and you know they all drove around in little sporty cars and I realised that they were no better than me. So by 21 I realised that you know just having money or a posh voice doesn't make you you know any better. So it was a good it was a good thing for me to do. Everything's led to something else. Everything I've done has always got me to the next level. See that's really switched on. I'm gonna be really honest because I've been in that situation where the people who surround me are richer and, and very obviously wealthier and have a, have a nicer life. And it, make, it, does, it makes me feel terrible. Yeah, it's intimidating, isn't it? And the fact that you were able to go, we're just the same, mate. You just got a better car. I yeah. really admire. I really was. And I've always felt that. And I still feel that to this day. And I feel like, you know, whether you've got a million followers or three followers, it doesn't define you. It is what you bring to the table at that time. What do you? What are you going to do today to be kind and lovely? That's all I care about. I don't think how many, I know you said earlier about having it a lot of influence, but it's very you know influence is something that can come and go in waves. You know this could all come wrapped around my ears tomorrow. I could say the wrong thing. I could be cancelled. So I just think in the back of my head, as long as I'm always a good person, and I'm always kind of reading the room and being respectful I should be all right but who knows who yeah. I had a friend of mine on recently who is in the movies so he wrote and produced a film an independent film that's gone on to win loads of awards and so he came on to talk about how he got into movies and I don't know about you but when I think about getting into into Hollywood getting into the movies and doing it the BAFTAs I assume that it's like networking and being really smooth mm. and like knowing the right people and having to maybe step on some people to get where you want to be and I think that's how I thought the media was yeah I can so say that. that if that's how you think the media is then you perpetuate that when you get into it mm. and after that conversation I did think oh I I don't think how I behaved in the media was true to me I think it was what I thought I had to be so again the fact that you're like as long as I can look myself in the mirror and say I'm a good person have I been kind today doesn't matter what else is going on I get to choose how I navigate this world of influence and social media and being yeah. a I think being my own boss obviously when you're working in the media you're employed by I don't know magazine or whatever so you have to live by their codes and their conduct. The beauty of what I do and what we do now is that we write our own kind of business model, don't we? Mm. And then we have to reinforce it every single day. So every morning when I get up and I do these kind of you know, impromptu, very paired back chats, I'm very conscious of the fact that people are coming to my stories. They might have been following me for years, but they might have never heard me speak. So it's like, what are they gonna come from? What are they gonna take away from this? And it's like a constant repetition for me of reinforming people, letting people know I'm here for them, letting them know I'm a nice person and that they're welcome. 
And that's really my whole business model with my Instagram page has been about repetition. If you look through all my images, there's a lot of repetition. And mm -hmm. I really rely on that because I think you've got to find what you love and then you've got to keep, you know, you've got to keep reminding people this is where you stand. Um, otherwise you can get a bit lost. And so I, I think actually my routine and rhythms that maybe come from mental health issues and whatnot have played in my favour. Because those, you know, those kind of routines that I rely on at home are actually a great way to do business. Mm -hmm. um, I've never really unpicked that as much as what I should probably do. I've had counselling and I've had other people try and unpick it for me. But I do believe that um, success is built on repetition and, um, you know, constant practice. And I think that the Instagram, why my Instagram maybe has grown is because I practice what I preach daily, in, out, never give up, never stop. It's a constant. Mm. Um, so anyone that's listening to this that's maybe thinking, in my career, I'm not getting where I want to go, you've just got to keep going and be constantly on it. It's not ever going to be, you know, like you do one thing and then you get promoted and that's it. It's just the harder you work, the harder it gets, if that makes sense. Yeah, and it's almost like you don't want to do one thing and achieve it because there's no real blueprint there. You can't replicate them. It's crazy, actually, because when I hit a million followers, I knew before a million that a million was a lot of people. And, you know, you think of it like that. And I thought, wow, that's like huge. I'm going to be so much happier when I hit a million. Not a day. Not a, my mood didn't change. I found myself working harder because then I felt I need to keep this up. I can never go below a million, so now I'm going to have to work even harder. Those pressures, I think success. I read an interview, in fact, it was an interview, I was watching Adele being interviewed, and she said that the, the more successful she got, the smaller her circle got, and the more overwhelmed with her career she got. And I completely understand that. Um, the harder I work and the more I achieve, the more responsibility, the more to lose. And yeah, that's what I'm learning at the minute. Yeah, it's like the sword of Damocles hanging over your head. And yeah. this is not because I've read any great text. That that is a line from a song in the Rocky Horror Show. <laughs> oh, I do love musical. <laughs> but it is the sword of Damocles hanging over the head of the guy who's got everything, but it's on a thread, so it could just fall down and kill you at any mm -hmm. second. I feel like yeah. when you talk about cancel culture as well, that feels like it comes into play. Um, so you've mentioned mental health a couple of times. So sh should we fast forward to that or should we whiz over into that space? Because yeah, let's talk about that because that actually kind of, the entire career I had at Virgin kind of led to my eating disorder. So it's kind of, sometimes it's better to talk about the initial thing, I don't know. Is it better to talk yeah. about the up to it or better to just talk about what happened? So was it, you said mental health, was it a combination of an eating disorder and anxiety and depression? How did it manifest for you? I, I must admit, my any anxiety I've experienced hasn't really manifested itself until recently. So my mental health initially was that when I joined Virgin, I had this job, there was an incredible amount of pressure to be, to look the right way. You know, when you spoke earlier about how in the media you perpetuated the kind of attitude you believed you should but it wasn't really you mm. I completely did the same at Virgin I wasn't really that um, self-obsessed but because everybody around me was telling me to be I felt like I should be so I was very um, obsessive with food and I lived with girls that I lived with two girls one was a lap dancer 
and she was so fit and just naturally very slim and never, you know, she could eat what she wanted. It didn't matter. But the other girl was very slim and tall, but worked really hard at it. And so coming off a flight and going into the kitchen and everything was kind of you know, like skim milk and, you know, fat content or whatever, I became very aware of everything I was eating. So my eating disorder initially was just depriving myself and that pattern of behavior. And then when I slowly began, I'd say after about four or five years of flying, I sometimes would um, purge. And that would be maybe if I'd been on a big bender down route on a, you know, a bit of a boozy trip. And these patterns of behavior were quite sporadic at first, but then slowly they developed and it just got worse and worse and worse. And all it takes is for little traumas to happen in your life. Um, and you find yourself, this is your like mechanism of coping. And that's kind of what happened to me. I would use not eating and purging as a way to control my emotions almost. Really and hard. not place the other issues that you actually really yeah. take the time to unpick. Yeah, and I think that when you're, especially when you're very slim, when you get to a certain weight, you can't compute and deal, it numbs you almost. You can't compute what's going on in your head. Um, it's a very weird feeling. And certainly for me, when I was de- in the depths of anorexia, I was very, very underway. I think I was like five stone or something. I was really ill. And I'd had to stop work, like Virgin had basically said, look, we're gonna ground you because you're not healthy enough to fly. And I remember being in the kitchen and John had bought me the ingredients to make a sauce for a salad. It's like a dressing. And I'm reading the instructions to this dressing and the ingredients are there and I can't compete. I just couldn't, I, I just broke down crying. I was like, I can't do this. I, I just can't actually put these ingredients into a bowl. I don't get it. I, I don't have to measure this. That is what anorexia does to the body. It physically breaks down every element of your mind. And at first, that is a buzz because when you're numbed in that sense, you can switch off those emotions. But for me, it just, oh, it's utterly heartbreaking. It's really, I think it's such a heartbreaking disease because it's so um, all consuming. Obviously you can't avoid food. And I think because it will never leave me, I have, obviously spoken about it in the last couple of years. I think I first spoke about it with Jules, you know, Jules and Sarah. Yeah. They were the first people to like get it out of me because before then I'd never spoken about it online. So I did not know what I was opening. You know, that can of worms was kind of firmly sealed and it's so cathartic to talk about it. So I do open up the conversation now and every day I get people that will message and talk about it. And that's great because although I can't fix their illness, can be like a big sister and just give them a bit of love but it's utterly hard it's a really hard disease very hard it won't ever go yeah it's a constant um it's work isn't it yeah it is and that's fine I'm, I'm kind of accepting of it again I think it's made me a better person because I am aware of it and I care about how other people going through it will cope with it and I can see it a mile off so when I go to events, specifically in the influencer industry, where everybody's on a diet, uh, I can see it. And I can't say it. Sometimes I can say something else, and I don't say anything. Um, but yeah, it's really sad, really hard. Um, for you, was there a link between how you were treating yourself physically and how you felt about yourself? Like You don't strike me as someone who has low self-esteem. You seem very centred. But... Yeah. And I don't, I don't understand 
the complexities of anorexia, but was there a part of it that was self-harm? Like, did you have to find yourself again and like yourself in order I think to recover? I, did, yeah. I think that I decided very quickly that being underweight or being skinny was proof that I was successful. So it was about chasing this kind of success, if you like. And because I'd never had, I'd never been the boss. So at Virgin, I'd always been cabin crew. You know, I never really got promoted <laughs> um, because I didn't play the game. Um, anyone that's from Virgin watching that will know what I mean. And I feel as though I'd got to like, you know, 28 and being nice just wasn't enough. It wasn't enough to be just nice. And suddenly I'd found this like, oh, I've lost weight and people complimenting me and I felt great and it was like a buzz. But then comes into play, the, how do I maintain staying slim? It's not enough to be slim, you've got to maintain it. And that's when it becomes very damaging and unhealthy, what it did for me. So that was kind of where it started. And then I lost myself very much so. I agree, I did lose myself and didn't like myself, but I didn't like anything. And I wasn't fun to be around. I was, you know, I just wasn't, I was like a shell of myself. And my recovery has taught me lots of things, but one is to appreciate laughter and fun. And my husband stood by me the whole time, bless him. He really went through the mill. But we have such a great relationship as a consequence of it because we understand the value of like enjoyment. So I know that people that watch my channel will be like, oh, she's always in the garden drinking rosé and she always looks like she's eating too much and she's always out. But when you've been deprived and when you've had a period of your life where it was really low, you really make the most of when it's good. So I am, um, I don't know, a little bit kind of celery kind of attitude. I do just enjoy everything. And when you go, you know, I go to these dinners, like the dinner we went to, uh, which was a lovely little dinner, that one, yeah. But I really made the most of it. You know, I was there drinking the drinks and, you know, I, I stayed to the end. I'm just one of those people that makes the most of everything now. Because it might not have, you know, I might go, you know, we might be talking in a year's time and my mental health has taken a, a nosedive. So I'm always very aware of that. Mm. It's the sort of Damocles, and that's why you have to, uh, the, the, the work. Like, is, is there anything you do on a daily basis that you feel grounds you and makes, because I think sometimes what happens, definitely in my mental health recovery, when I, I was diagnosed with severe anxiety and depression about four years ago, and the recovery is not linear. Mm. And so you do have a bad day. And I think how you cope with a bad day is just as important as how you manage a good day. Yeah, it is. And there's that thing of a daily, almost like, do you check in with yourself on the daily? I do. I am a great um, hobby person, so I like to have things to do. I like to keep busy. So certainly when we hit lockdown, I was a bit like, shit, what am I going to do now? Like, you know, I need to be busy. I'm a busy person. I'm always doing stuff. And so I started a charity sale. I set up a whole website with stuff to sell. I sold all my designer gear. John was like, what are you doing? But for me, I needed to be busy. And then slowly, I got used to the new rhythm, the new way of not being so busy. Um, but that's me managing my mental health by keeping an eye on not having too long to think about things mm -hmm. because if I'm not if I'm thinking about things then I start to question myself and the doubt creeps in mm. so I don't think, I don't really kind of sit there and go right Lauren how are you doing today I'm not a list maker or anything like that 
I'm definitely someone that if I'm not if I don't have plans, I will create them. Right. And if that means making stuff up to do, or it'll do creating a problem from nothing. You know, maybe the kitchen's the wrong colour. I'm going to paint it today. Um, yeah, I'm a doer. So yeah. where, maybe where the grafting element comes in. Maybe that's why a lot of my peers think I work so hard. When in actual fact, I'm just trying to stay distracted. Yeah, yeah. There's definitely. Um, I think when you are in a position where you are, where you've got a platform, where a lot of people want to work with you, you can you can stay pretty still, and things will come to you. But the the energy you give off, or the impression you give off, is that you're you're putting out as much as putting out. I don't mean it like that, Lorna. You're, <laughs> you're creating opportunities as much as you're embracing them. Like you're yes. not. Definitely. staying still waiting for things to come to you now that you've got this platform yeah that's actually true I do feel as if in this industry you have to be proactive no matter where you are on what level and also as well we've got to remember that although I work with brands a lot that my community is the most important thing they're the value that's what what is valuable about me right now is my community it's not even me I'm just a part of a big a big conversation. So if I stop communicating with them, then what's the point? Um, so yeah, I mean the brand brand deals are like the cherry on top, but I would rather have a great kind of dynamic with my audience audience community. I'd rather be doing that than anything else. So there are months where I just don't do any ads at all. In fact, if you went on my page now, there's not that many ads, uh, and that's. Maybe that's a privilege of, you know, being a bit older, so I've got a bit of savings, so I don't need to do every job that comes my way. But also, I just think it's a really nice way to do business because then it, you know who I am. I'm not just a billboard for other people's ideas. My platform is all about me and what I love. And then if anything comes in that kind of fits that, um, then brilliant. But if it doesn't fit, it go, it doesn't come in, sadly. Much to dismay of John, who's like, but that's a lot of money, Lorna. You could buy a lot of shoes with that. <laughs> and I'm like, no. <laughs> well, it does seem like in this story that, that John is a really important piece of the jigsaw. When did oh. you meet John? I met John in 2007 or eight. I think it was 2008. I'd just come out of a relationship that I was convinced I was going to marry this guy. And we'd bought a flat together and I thought it was all going hunky-dory. And then he'd gone, um, he'd actually gone on his best mate's stag do. Oh. It's one of those things, you know where you're like, you're best mates with her and she, he's best mates with him. The four of us were like a little bit of a duo, you know, a bit of a hangout crowd. Mm. Anyway, came back and he'd slept with this girl. And it made him realise that he didn't really want to be with me anymore. And that's actually, looking back now, I think fair play to the lad for having the honesty to do that. And actually, if I look back, you know, we weren't really that compatible. But you don't know that, do you, when you're early 20s? You just think, oh, anyway. So we, I was in the process of selling our property. We had this flight in Hove. And I'd met John on the night out and just got divorced. And I just thought it was amazing. And I remember he took me back to his house. And he was selling his house the way I was selling mine. And it was just, you know, when you just meet someone, you're just like, oh, my God, this is the coolest man I have ever met in my whole life. And I just thought he was, I still have this day, I think he's even cooler now, but at the time I was thinking, wow, I was like blown away. It was like, it, it hit me like, I can't even explain. And I think we bought a house together after like two and a half months. I'm not even joking. I think we got engaged after like seven months. I just knew. When you know, 
And I don't, I don't disagree that a lot of people marry people and there isn't that same wow, and they still have an amazing relationship and they'll have the best marriage ever, maybe even better than ours. But it just was, it was just the time in my life just a bit. But I do sometimes wonder what if, what if I'd stayed with Carl, my ex, and how that would have played out. He's now married with kids. I'm not, I'm not with kids. So it's kind of like, you know, when you start looking and thinking, what if I'd be that, but I'd be her now. And then you go and look at someone's Instagram page and you're like, oh, I wonder what, you know, you, 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 everyone's done this. If anyone's listening, not saying they've not done this, but you know, you look at your ex's new girlfriend or wife or whatever, and then you start to imagine yourself like that. And I, I, I did that and I was like, no, this is not for me. This is not for me. So I think everyone has their world, don't they, and their life planned out. It's like that ill destino vibe where even if it, it is what you think it is, it's what's mapped out for you will find you. I think yeah I believe that too I think it's that saying isn't it what's meant for you won't pass you by it's just that it might not happen when you on on your timeline like it might not happen if you want it to and I think that's sometimes the problem with ambitious people is that you know what you want but if it doesn't happen on your timeline that can be really frustrating yeah of course like you look at these actors that didn't hit the big time until they were in their 60s and now they're like they're probably the most famous actors of all time and that's it isn't it it's that being able to understand that your life doesn't have to be a series of kind of short sprints it can be a little bit of a marathon of you know integrity and holding your own and learning to who you are to become something when i met john he was 46 and he said to me i have never been in love before you and I kind of believe him actually, because I think I think he did relationships to fit what the narrative of life is meant to be, which is that you get married in your twenties, you have kids in your thirties, and you have a really good job and a big house when you're forties. And he was forty-six, having to sell his property and downsize. Uh, you know, felt very kind of on the back foot. Didn't really like his job, and it all just turned around. And he's really—I hope he's happy. He seemed quite happy, didn't he, earlier? <laughs> Just any time. So, I don't know. That's how kind of how I look at it. Do you know what's really lovely is that the, the second I asked that question, your entire demeanour changed, and it's like you just, like, literally put <laughs> on highlighter. I know. Like, I just love him so much, and he's, like, my best friend as well. So... I love all my friends, like all my best friends, I just love them so much. And when I talk about them, I get really excited because they give me a lot of joy. And it's a lonely place being on the internet in the career capacity. And it can be very, sometimes a bit soul destroying, but also sometimes a bit hard and a bit constant. So having people in the real world that just accept you for all your flaws, like nothing I can do means that John's going to cancel me. Like, my best friend is never going to cancel me, whatever I say to her. And I just really appreciate that. Having an internet audio, an internet community has made me appreciate that massively. How, um, how did he help in your recovery? Because, it, because I guess, from what I understand about anorexia, sometimes you need a jolt from someone else. It's not something... Mm that um like with with my anxiety for example with my depression I was I was going to the GP going please help me but I don't feel that's necessarily something that is characteristic of the same thing with eating disorders because it's quite personal it's very in your yeah. own 
how how was he instrumental in your work? Well, the thing with anorexia is it's very secretive. So it's all about creating secrets. So, of course, in a relationship sense, it's just the worst because I was hiding so much from him. And I, at one point, I was existing on uh, gummy bears, you know, like Haribo. Yeah. So I would eat. And I had them hidden all over the house. <laughs> and he would find them. And it was just, oh, I don't know how he coped. I don't know how he coped with it. But there were certain moments where he stood by me and when I, I told him, you know, that I had that moment with him where I said, look, I can't cope. I've been saying I can, but I can't. I need help. And then when we did seek help, we went to the Priory um, in Brighton. And the, I, the deal was that I was going to go to the Priory and I was going to be a day patient. And we were going to get through this. And when I went in on the first day, I had a morning with them and they said, look, we, we can't help you if you don't stay here. So you have to come for a month and you can't leave. So they sent me home to get my stuff. And we got parked outside the house. And I said to John, look, John, I'm going to be really honest with you now. If you make me go there, I will do it. I'll do the month, but the relationship's over. Like, I'll, I'll, you know, we can't be married because you, you're betraying something that I don't believe in, which is I don't want to be in this place. And he was like, right, well, then you're not going to go. We're going to fight this just on your terms. Because it was so much about the illness is control. And I felt like I was losing control at that point. And he was the person to support me in doing it on my terms, which isn't necessarily ideal. Uh, and I remember to prove to him, we didn't go, we didn't go in the house. We drove into Brighton and we went to ZZ's. <laughs> I remember this and I ordered a lasagna and I ate half a lasagna in front of him to prove to him that I was committed to overcoming this disease. And I suppose they said the rest is history. It's really not because it's gone on for years. But wow, did we stick by each other on that? We he just supported me completely. Always has done. Yeah. That's so lovely. Mm. And like you said, like I mean, you said earlier on, you know, you really put him through it. I and did. I get it was it was a massive test for both of you and the marriage. But like, obviously, yeah. right now. I mean, the poor bloke. He's probably thinking, "I'm on my third wife. I'm nearly 50. Do I really need this? <laughs> Great. But he just he never said he never complained. Nothing was too much. Cool fact: A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film. If only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. He supported me when I didn't. I decided to leave Virgin altogether and not work. And we, we weren't, we had a good job, but we couldn't really afford a lot of things that we used to. And it's just great. All through it. Can't fault the man. And with the Virgin experience, obviously it was, I mean, you said it was the thing that led to it all happening. And I can completely understand how those circumstances, because even whenever I think about air hostesses, air stewardesses, I think about their aesthetic. 
and we've all heard the stories about them being told you can't be bigger than a certain size Mm. it's true i agreed on my interview um and yeah yeah i mean we've got to go back now to like early to you know early early 2000s 2003 that was the norm you had to be weighed to check that you would fit in the uniform you couldn't be under five foot two you couldn't be over 33. <laughs> it was just crazy. It's different times. I think that we forget that in our lifetime, we've seen so much change and so much progress. Yeah, it's actually yeah. unbelievable. And I think the internet age has brought that about because it's forced us all to face our kind of, you know, our own kind of opinions of other people and our prejudices, like straight on. And yeah, it's um, it's just constant now, isn't it? We're just constantly learning and improving mm. ourselves. So when, when you went into Virgin straight from uni, were you single or were you in a relationship? Oh, single. How yeah, long were you single single ready to mingle? <laughs> how long were? How long were you single when you worked? At, how long did you work at Virgin, and how many of those years were you single? I always had someone on the go, <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't have. I don't know. I just dabbled, really, and obviously, I was living. I was in Brighton as well, so you like snog girls, and you just do. You want to be cool and try everything. So I was very much that person that just tried everything to make sure I'd not missed anything out, and I wasn't going to get into a heavy relationship. I think. Um, I think I joined when I was twenty-one, and I think my first serious relationship was when I was twenty-four. So I had like three crazy years of just doing everything. Because I'm thinking about what you said earlier about wanting to run away, wanting to escape from reality. And the thing you get to do as cabin crew is travel the world and you get to enjoy a couple of days here and there. Yeah. What were those experiences like? And did that feel like, did it feel like the escape you wanted? Oh my God, amazing. Yes, absolutely. And some of these trips back in the day, because the routes were new, if you got a new route, you would probably only do one flight a week on the schedule. So the crew would have to stay there for the whole week. So you'd request like a seven night Cape Town or a five night Vegas. And we would be in Vegas for five nights. And it was just, it's an unbelievable, that time in my life, now people can't get because airlines are going bust and just the schedules are different. So I was so fortunate, but oh my God, did we enjoy it. I have got stories on stories. My management were like, I told them a pitch for a book because I was like, I should, write, you know, I should write a little book on, you know, life as cabin crew. When I started to tell them the stories, they were like, you, you'd get sued for everything in the story. There's nothing here you can actually write and publish because it is all so damaging to celebrities and all that kind of thing. But it was just wonderful. We had so much fun. And I really got to know myself and I really got to experience highs and lows as well. So experiencing people taking drugs, seeing um, particularly when we used to fly to Grenada and then when it got hit with the big hurricane, seeing the kind of how the world was kind of collapsing in parts and not being supported. Uh, So it really made me quite empathetic to like other countries. Flying into Delhi and then our our Hyatt Regency, Hyatt, whatever, overlooking, you know, a complete and utter devastation of people living homeless. You can't, you can't see that and not see it mm. and be affected by it. So there was a lot of charities being funded by a lot of cabin crew. A lot of cabin crew do a lot of charity work uh, because I think when they travel and they see the world around them, they realise actually they can add value and they're quite privileged and they, they have a voice. So that was good. 
I really am glad that I, I'm really proud to work for Virgin and it was a really good time in life. That's all I can say on that. Okay. Well, as soon as we're out of lockdown, I am getting in my car, I'm driving down <laughs> with, a, with a box of pink wine and I'm going to make you tell me every single sense yeah. of story. Uh, I'll bring Robin with me. Um, so what was it like then transitioning out of that life into just being at home because I it's almost a bit like what we're going through now with lockdown and yeah. that's a it's a big adjustment to like not have anywhere to be going oh my god I went from being like the biggest party animal on the planet to like doing like three night benders in Vegas where I never went back to my room I was just out all the time <laughs> to um, that was when I was married as well John was very understanding to then this kind of yeah not nothing to do I, after about six months John said to me I think you need a job because you're bored so I got a job I, I wrote a letter a really random email to Rocket St George you know the homewares company oh, yeah. yes yeah you know they kind of like you know call homewares whatever because yeah. uh, I knew that their offices were outside of Brighton so anyway so I wrote them a letter and I was like yeah I'm really into interior design and I was like crap and Jane wrote back to me and she was like yeah we need we actually looking for someone were you coming for an interview I went for this interview clearly completely underqualified for anything that they needed me to do but I think they quite liked me because about two days later she emailed me back and she went look you've not got the job um, we've actually changed the job role we're looking for and it's going to be more PR focused but we it's the summer holidays and we're all whatever holiday school holiday and we need cover do you fancy just coming in so of course I turned up all dolled up, you know, makeup, hair extensions, the works, and it's a warehouse and whatnot. And they just looked at me like it was literally like something out of a movie, you know, where someone comes in with their Labutans on and stuff, and everyone's in like, you know, rock, you know, overall <laughs> packing boxes. And the phone rang, and no one picked up the phone. It was like half eight in the morning. I picked up the phone and I said, like, you know, good morning, St George. I'm on speaking. How can I help you? And they just all looked at me, and I chatted to this woman, and she was really angry about, I don't know. I chatted her down and she got off the call very happy and they were like like amazed that I you know I think they knew I think I was a, mi a missing part of the jigsaw at that time that they needed someone with custom service kind of shazam um to just add a bit of lightness because customer service in e-com companies is just absolute minefield um and my customer service skills were really strong from Virgin so it was great so I got I kept that job I was meant to be there two weeks. I stayed there a year. And I remember when I left, because I said to Jane, I was like, Jane, I want to be a, an Instagram fashionist now. I think I can make some money out of this. She was like, well, you know, the job's always going to be here for you. They, they really were worried for me. They were like, they just weren't confident I was going to do very well out of it and bless them. They were like, they're going to keep the job for me. They gave me a big party. And everyone came out and stuff. They'd obviously all helped me through my eating disorder. So they were really kind of quite a strong family. And I still speak to them now. I still go out for dinner with Jane all the time. It's just crazy that you meet these people. And then, yeah, it's just lovely. What a lovely company to work for. This is the second conversation I've had this week where my guest has got the magic bullet. And the magic bullet is how to have the best relationship with whoever they're in front of. Yeah, maybe that is. Yeah, I suppose that's quite important, isn't it? And I feel like a lot of the 
podcasts that I've created, a lot of the questions I've asked have been about how do I present the best version of myself to the world so that I get the best of the world back? Mm. And it's something you said earlier, actually, about curries, where you said, I never expect people to meet me on my level. I meet them on theirs, whether it's above or below. Maybe that's another thing. Maybe it is. I think um, everyone has their thing, don't they, that they're really good at. Some people aren't people people, but they're great entrepreneurs. They're you know great masterminds of business, and I think I'm not. I, I don't think I'm necessarily self aware. I've watched a lot of TED talks on being self aware, and I've always come away thinking, oh maybe I'm not. <laughs> what I know is that I know my strengths and I know my weaknesses. So when I come to the table, I know what I'm bringing and what I can't bring, and I don't I demand anyone else to bring stuff either. So I think because I know I can't add value, sometimes I don't expect it of anyone else. When I was at Virgin and I was flying, I did three years down the back, like economy. Most most crew get promoted to the upper class in about a year. Three years I was down there. That wasn't because I was bad at my job. I was really good at my job. I was so good at my job that I forgot to sit next to the boss and get a form filled out and get told, you know, to my management that I was doing great. So I was kind of like flying under the radar. But I don't regret a minute of it because... Rather than just doing a year down the back and then being promoted, I really got to work with people of all different situations and new people, cabin crew that had just joined, people that had been told to work down the back but they were used to working at the front. I got to see it all. So I really became, I feel like the skills that you learn on the way up are really important. People underestimate it a little bit. But actually, that's the important bit, not the bit when you arrive in the class. And I kind of feel like that about the internet and like social media. So it's the early days, that's where you've got to put the graft in. And I think if you look at politically now, a lot of people getting called out, you know, the, a tweet from 2013 is being regurgitated. Hope to God there's no awful tweets that I've made in 2013, but I suspect there isn't because I've always played with a, a kind of straight bat and always looked to do better from the outset. And I think a lot of people kind of lose sight of that, or at least I don't know where I'm going with this, but I just think that it's, a, it's really important that whatever you're doing, whatever stage you're at, that you bring, you turn up and you bring your best game, uh, regardless of whether or not you get promoted. I don't think I ever whinged about not getting promoted. I know all the people did, and I got the mickey taken out of me because my, you know, when you have your registration number, people are like, God, how long have you been here? Why are you in economy? But I liked it because it was a good job. And I knew that I was getting, you know, I was learning the hard way and it was valuable. That, see, I think that is quite self-aware, actually, because I would have been moaning about not being promoted if I was still there three years, if the average was a year. I think that shows real self-awareness to go, actually, I might not be getting the promotion, but I am I am in the best school here. This is the best, yeah. like, this is the the, where I'm going to learn the most. That's I think that's really self-aware. Yeah, I did. I just learned so much. All my skills that came from Virgin came from working in economy, not from working in business. It's weird, isn't it? I remember working in business and feeling a bit bored, <laughs> like offering to go down the back because that's where all the action takes place. That's where you meet all sorts of walks of life. Whereas most business ca- passengers are regular travellers um, and either are on business or work, so they don't really want to have a chat. Mm. You know, other things going on. Whereas people are on their holiday, 
but uh, literally this is their one fight of the year or whatever they're, they're excited and it's great i met some very interesting characters in in the uh, economy i met some very interesting characters in opera actually I, again, the wine will be in the back of my car. But you're reminding me of something. There's that saying of, um, you know, dress for the job that you want or act for the person you want to be. But, that, but yes, but then something you said earlier was just like, I, but as long as every day I come from a place of kindness. Yeah, it's true. So you can still do that, but don't let don't don't act like the person you want to be if that means if you don't really know what that is and you're becoming a dick <laughs> sort of like. yeah and it's so easy to become complacent with it as well mm. it's got to work you've got to work at it every day haven't you it's compl- it's easy for me on instagram someone can dm me it's easy for me to just ignore it that would be easy but i don't i answer every message yeah unless it's like offensive I mean, if it's horrible, then obviously I'm not going to reply to that. But if anybody's got the time to ask me a question, then it is only right that I reply to it. Mm. Otherwise, what are we doing here? Is this just me showing you how great my life is? Because if that's the case, then that's not really a reason to go on Instagram, is it? If, If I turn my Instagram page into a kind of like, you know, look how great I am, what service does that provide? I don't know. I feel like I've got more, there's more about me than that. I'm worth more than that. And I've got more to share. Yeah. I mean, you must get a ton of DMs, though. I mean, it- thousands, thousands. At the, at the minute, we're averaging about 2,000 a day. It's my, my full-time job is my engagement, my conversations on my Instagram. But I, it actually got to the point, actually, where I've stopped. I was posting, like, daily, and now I don't post main grid images daily. Mm. Um, and I think people are all right with that. I would rather take the hit on that as my like shop front and not lose the connection with the people that have followed me or you know that I collaborate with or whatnot and especially when you start taking on ads because the minute you start promoting product is the moment that you have a duty of care to the people that want to know more about it and we're privileged to get the information so why would you not share it and I appreciate that I should probably do more IGTVs to explain everything but there's nothing sweeter and having that one-on-one conversation with somebody, it's such an intimate moment when you DM someone and they reply to you. Mm. And I enjoy that. I get a buzz out of being a part of it. And I retain such a lovely, wonderful community as a consequence. Mm. It's a positive space for me. And when I'm having a rough day, people can tell and they'll message me. And it's just a really nice, you know, it's a very much a, just randomly, you know the book Normal People? Yeah. And... I know a lot of people have been speaking about that recently, and a lot of the diet, a lot of the conversation has been about the fact that those two people have a relationship one on one, like they give as much as they take from each other, and that's what I want my Instagram to be, where it's as much about me giving as I take. And so I think the more I've received in terms of like ads and having my own collections, and the more I feel compelled to do more and give more. Mm. And when I really struggle, I battle with myself because John's like, "It's two in the morning, you're gonna go to sleep now." And I'm like, I've just got a couple more messages to answer. And it's just a constant, but it's lovely. Like, how lovely is that for that I get all those people that want to chat? It's so nice. And I think I, I think at the start of lockdown, Instagram uh, have changed it so you can actually message on the desktop as well as yeah, on the desktop. Yeah. It's made it so much easier because I am a typer. Yeah. And so for me, if someone sends me a really considered message on DM, 
I'm able to write, right, that's what I need to do from the laptop. So I can just like fire it up and properly get back to them. It's so nice. Yeah, it's good. There is an obvious question that I do need to ask you about your um, customer service days. And that is, and I guess it applies to social media as well in the sense of trolling. Obviously, with some trolling, you have to just ignore it because it's pointless trying to engage. But what do you do? Like, how do you manage a tricky customer? Someone who is coming to you at a 10 and you need to get them down to a three. Like, Yeah, it's true. Um, well, my immediate thing really is to get on their level. So that's what I'm trying to find, some kind of common experience. Um, and also, listen, the thing about being angry is that it dissipates when someone lets you breathe and speak. So when somebody would come to me and be very annoyed and angry, I just let them say everything they wanted to say and then start to ask them questions about themselves that they can't get the answer wrong. So I would always be like, okay, let's just, let's get some information first. So what's your full, what's your full name? Um, who Have you spoken to me before? Have I helped you before? And just try and calm everything down and speak on a level that we're both equal, if that makes sense. But the, the last thing you want when you're annoyed, I've been a customer myself, is when somebody doesn't want to accept responsibility. So first to the first person to accept responsibility puts them in it puts you in the driving seat. And that's been what I do on Instagram as well. When somebody comes to me with a problem, it's not up to me to go, well, I don't know. And I'm sorry. That's not going to help anybody. It's up for me to go, okay, I'm really glad you've messaged me about this and how can we fix this? And there's just that collaboration and that kind of relationship. Um, and it is hard. There's definitely always going to be people that don't want to listen or want to, they just want to have a row. Um, we don't know what their mental health is and what's going on behind. Well, from my customer service days at Virgin, where it was, you know, it could be physical. I had a guy once piss up my pinny. Like, we got his willy out and weed up that way. I'm so sorry. I, I really think, did you say what you actually just said? Yeah. And I just remember thinking, what was that about? And I, we were on the runway, and I had to ring up the FO and be like, you need to pull back because we're going to have to get this guy off. He's like, <laughs> you know, it's basically he had to get arrested. But this is, you don't know what people are, where they're coming from. We don't know his mental health. We don't know what's happened to him. And so you always have to be aware of that. So I think it's one thing to do e-com where I'm behind a screen and I'm pretty safe. Um, maybe mentally I'm not or physically I'm but it's one, another thing to be on an aircraft with someone and then be physically violent Yeah. Um, and that's a completely different kettle of fish and I think that what's happened is because uh, on the internet we do have that barrier of physicality people feel very confident in being a little bit more you know a bit more aggressive a bit more brave mm. that perpetuates behaviour so the more it continues the more you allow it the worse it gets so I think anybody listening right now that is on the internet, doesn't matter whether you're an influencer or you're just an absolute normal person, if somebody is aggressive to you, you have to have zero tolerance and you should block them. That's what the tools are there for. Because if you engage, and don't get me wrong, I have tried to engage, and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. But what you're doing is you're allowing that behavior to be accepted and that isn't healthy, I don't think. Mm. So I'm a zero tolerance person now. And I, even if I want to reply to people, sometimes I think, do you know what, I could actually probably talk these people around and have them really liking me by the end. But uh, that's teaching them that that's okay. 
and it's my responsibility to, to not accept that. So I'm very, you know, almost black and white now with my behaviours and don't. Don't know how you feel about that. Well, I think that's really interesting because I think it could be your work. You know, you could do the work to help them, but actually it, it's on them. And there's there's no contract between the two of you where you have to take on that work. It would just be like, mm. you, like I've seen people do it, like celebrities do it on social media where someone trolls them and they say, look, are you okay? Because like, I don't think you sound like you're in a great place. Like, do you need help? Because I'll get it to you. And I think that's really, in, that's, that's quite great. And it's worked out obviously in some circumstances. Mm. But I do think, I think you can tell as well. I think instinctively, and I think you're obviously a very sharp observer. I think you'll, I think you'll use the block button probably very, very well. And also, yeah. not I, don't think, I don't give it a second thought. I think that that's the key to being successful on the internet <laughs> is to be okay with not, you know, not being that bothered about things after they've happened. I'm not a dweller. So if I have a bit of a row with someone, I forget about it. The best experience I've had, say for example, when we're in the style collection, I'm working with Adam. He's taught me so much about being a, a businessman because sometimes we'll have these little disagreements, shall we say? <laughs> we'll say, no, Adam, I want this. And in every instance, we just go back straight back to normal. The next time I speak to him, it's like, no, no dwelling. Let's not dwell on this. Let's just carry on. We can't agree on everything. And that's brilliant. I think that's anyone. the key. I think that's the key then. Maybe. I'm trying to find the magic bullet. I'm trying to find the magic. And I think your magic is that you don't take it personally. If someone pisses up your penny, you don't take it. I don't. You're like, it could have been anyone. So I'm not going to make this about me. I'm going yeah, to my penny and get you off this aircraft. I mean, I had to look at it from a, a good thing was from that flight. was because I'd been pissed on, <laughs> I couldn't be a food handler because obviously, like, I had to add to have proper, like, totally. deep clean. So my boss said, just go and sit in a class and watch a film. I don't need to do the service. <laughs> so it was a very enjoyable experience for me. There's always a positive, isn't there? There's always every cloud has a silver lining. Mm. Um, I hope that man was all right. I often think about him, actually, and how that kind of came out. There was some really awful things that happened to people. Um, my mum worked in the prison service for her kind of latter part of her career um, as a teacher. And she really did teach. She, she, something she said to me really stuck with me, which is that anyone can go to prison. Um, it doesn't matter. Anyone can be in the wrong situation at the wrong time and, as a consequence, end up incarcerated. And it's really stuck with me. So I always think when I come across anybody, whether it's a keyboard nasty person or a person on the street, I always think, I don't know what your background is. And it's not for me to take it on myself. Like, I can't absorb your crap. I just have to acknowledge it. And... I see it, but I don't have to get involved with it. That makes sense. It does. And I, do you know what? I think I, I have a lot of conversations on this podcast and I'm always thinking, I hope this ad, that is adding value to the listener. And throughout this entire conversation, Lorna, I'm just, there are so many nuggets of such wisdom, genuinely. Mm, that's good. And I feel like your ability, your ability with people to understand people, but also obviously you're, you, you've gone on a really long and intense journey to understand yourself mm. obviously, all plays into the success that you've got now personally and professionally obviously let's not just focus on the professional success like I would say like if I say to you are you happy I think I know what the answer is going to be 
Yeah. No, I am. I'm quite a happy little soul. Um, yeah, let's long may it continue. I'll keep working on it. I think it will. And I think it's what you said right at the top, which is every morning I check in and whatever I'm doing, I just have to check that I've been nice and kind about it. Yeah, always. Being kind is the easiest thing to practice. I think anyway. And um, although I am going to ask you a supplementary question now, this is like a trick. You've been bamboozled. Um, what about expectations? Kindness? Because I had this conversation with somebody recently who they say, I've been so kind to this person and then I just don't get it back. Where do you stand on out be- giving and expectations? Because that's where disappointment can yeah. arise. That's, that plays out on the internet a lot with this kind of entitlement of like, expect like you say expectation I have zero expectation you've got to remember that I have been an absolute bitch when I was very poorly I would not turn up to people's birthday parties I would let them down I've done all of that and because I know that I didn't do it because I'm a horrible person I just always think if someone doesn't turn up to your party or doesn't let you who lets you down or doesn't say the right thing or doesn't step up doesn't go to that funeral with you to support you you've just got to let people do what they need to do I think this kind of controlling the people um, and comparing each other. We're all just doing our own thing, aren't we? So I don't expect, I think that's probably why I've not got many friends. Like close, I'm not talking about, I've got lots of acquaintances, but I don't have many tight friends. And I think that is part of it because I, I don't want to expect too much. And with John, I don't expect anything. He just constantly turns up and delivers. Maybe he's taught me a lot about that actually. He has zero expectation from anybody. He, he's a, like a director in a bank and he has zero expectation. You know, every day, he never gets angry when people don't de- deliver. He just wants to help them fix it. So I don't know. I don't know why some people expect a lot and some people don't. I don't, I don't know the answer to that, to be honest. I think that's a personality trait mm. or disingenuousness about doing something for get, to getting it back, giving to receive. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I think a Leo that Leo star sign of just wanting to give and kind of, you know, being like the, the I always say that I'm like a lion looking after a cult. Um I would have made quite a good mum, actually. I don't want kids, but, you know, if I was going to have kids, I think I'd be quite a good mum. But I, don't, I think there's a great weight that is when you are kind to somebody or when you are doing something, the greatest kindness is when no one's watching, yeah. when no one's seeing it. That's the real acts of kindness, isn't it? When you do something without expecting the whole world to observe it. And maybe with the way I do my Instagram, I call it an iceberg because all of the conversations I have are on DM. They're not public. So a lot of the acts of kindness maybe feel like that aren't seen. Uh, but I'm a great believer in karma. So I always think, you know, if you're a good person and you do things for people, um, other things will happen, positive things will happen, not necessarily from them, but just in the kind of world of science and gravity and all that jazz. Uh, I can't, I'm not explaining myself to everyone. No, well, you that's are. How- but I think it's interesting that you say you believe in karma, but when you talk about the guy who peed on you, your first thing was, I hope he's all right, I think about him. So you haven't wished karma uh, on him? Yeah, because it's not, like you say, I could have been anybody. Mm. It wasn't personal to me. But the act of peeing on somebody, unless it's two consenting adults. 
Nice. Not the nicest. To be honest, it's the only time it's ever happened. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you, we, we, you're very welcome to tell me to steer well clear of this subject, but it's only because, funnily, I was reading a magazine yesterday and someone's written a very long article about not having had children and the pressure that she, the questions that she's asked and the pressure yeah. that she's under. I'm a few years older than you. I don't have children and I don't want children, but I've never felt like anyone's ever really asked me about that because I'm predominantly single. And so no one ever says anything. I'm just, I'm always like, I probably would have made a good mother, but a terrible mother at the same time. Like, <laughs> I think I'm a really, I think I would make a great like stepmom once all the hard work was done. You know, that's always where I, I sort of deflect it. Yeah, that's the best one, isn't it? Yeah. But do you ever, um, but have you had a lot of, questions about it because you have been married and does it piss you off no okay i have a bit of a giggle with it because i do like a q a on instagram yeah me I too. Do a Q&A. and of course it always appears and i always say i don't want to ignore this question because it's getting asked a lot and often i use the analogy of i just post about a birkin handbag and i say yeah you know I'd like, i want to have lots of children <laughs> um you know in different colors and whatnot and little you know gold hardware would be nice so I don't know. And then some people say, well, why are you getting all different? Why, you know, I don't find it funny that you're saying that children are Birkins. Then that whole dialogue opens up. I honestly don't think it's anybody else's business. Um, So it's not something I would ever ask of someone else. I mean, I don't really care. But maybe that's because I, you know, grew up, my my adult years were spent in Brighton. Um, So quite a transient kind of neighbourhood of people moving in and out. You never really kind of expected people to have, like, you know, a detached house with two cars on the drive and I just don't really care for that That's, that narrative isn't really played out for me and at the same time I understand why people are intrigued because mm. they're no- I'm nosy I want to know everything so it's just nice to be able to put a label on it isn't it and for me to give an answer to it the reason I haven't so far is because I love that idea of mystery and I like to not you know the reason I don't share my house on the internet I don't share it on my stories or Instagram or anything because it's nice to have mystery. It's like smoke and mirrors and never really knowing everything is what keeps people a little bit intrigued. Yeah. A bit excited to know more. So if I just lay it all out for everyone to see, then what's the point of continuing following my journey because you know everything. So that's the only reason I've never really said why I don't have kids. Um, I'm the same, like never, never really Never wanted them. Never been in a situation when anyone said, "Shall we have one?" Yeah, and that's and that's a lot of the reason. I think that I don't think there's this like dark, deep thing that people really want there to be. You know, like, oh yeah, I hate children. Yeah, I think I'm not Cruella Deville of the evenings, stroking all my Dalmatians. Um, I don't know. I really don't know why people are so obsessed with it. Mm. But the age of digital has made people come obsessed with things they don't know. So it's something that when you look in Google searches, how old is John? You know, what's Mr. Lux's age? Lorna Lux's house, Lorna Lux's kids, Lorna Lux's surgery. It's like all those things, because they're the things that I don't, either I haven't done or I don't talk about. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's funny, isn't it? Well, I when I used to work on a magazine, I used to do what we used to call the bump and baby package. So you'd do a shoot with a celebrity couple when they had the bump, and then you'd revisit them some months later yeah. and do the baby thing. And so I know every question, and I just think it's circumstantial. Like, 
someone tells you or they get married, you're like, when are you going to start a family? I just think there's almost like, it's like, you know, asking questions about life by numbers. And I just think, I just think it's a form of that. And I don't think people mean any harm at all. I don't, I'm like, there's no big reason. Yeah. I think that's it. It's not, it's not an interesting story Mm. uh, for me anyway. But yeah, I don't think there's any harm by it and I don't get offended by it. I would never be offended by anybody asking anything personal about me. Um, because it's, I understand why they would want to know. Because I get the same nosy intrigue. I just don't have the balls to ask people ask them. Uh, <laughs> I sometimes think it. You know what I mean? Yeah. You think, oh, I wonder if they, you know, she had her nose done. And you start wondering, but you would never ask them. But that doesn't stop us. It's just human nature, isn't it? It's a really nice way of being, Lorna, because it's like, if you, because because like, we can get prickly, people can get prickly about being asked certain things or whatever it might be. And I think to go, yeah, fair to ask, but nothing, you know, and sort of, I think what, obviously what you're very good at, whether it's customer service years, whatever it might be, might be something you learn from your mum, whatever. You're obviously very good at meeting people at a very calm place. I can't imagine you getting into a street fight. <laughs> over a misunderstanding no I wouldn't unless I was very drunk (laughs) (laughs) and then I would be trying to help I'd probably be going into the the chicken shop trying to buy everyone chicken to calm it down have a drumstick take a breather yeah yeah have a a diet coke that's really nice right so how are you coping in lockdown and what are your plans for the rest of it because it does look like it's all going to sort of lighten up a little bit yeah, I think it is going to. I am I'm working on a new summer collection, so that's kind of taking up a lot of creative space um, because it's really important to kind of nail the summer one because it does, it's my biggest drop. Mm. And then um, hoping to do more kind of housey stuff, you know, like decorating and stuff. Yeah. Um, and just cute things like, I don't know, like hanging out with my mum. I've really missed not seeing my mum. Um, so I want to kind of put time away for that and just spend time with her and have a few little wine, cheeky wines in the garden and okay. put the phone down. My mum hates it when I'm on my phone. So I want to prove to her how far I've come over lockdown. <laughs> and I can put my phone down for a good three hours at a time. Uh, so that's my plan, really. How about you? Same. I, I, I feel like it has the opportunity, which is a quite... My whole thing at the beginning of this, and listeners will know if they're regular listeners to the podcast, that when at the beginning of this, when I did one of my mini shows, I said, I'm choosing to see this as an opportunity. I have no control over a virus. So I'm choosing to see this as a positive opportunity. And I'm open to seeing how things go. And I have definitely become more creative. I definitely, I, I feel like I've had a little bit more time to think. I don't know about you, but I go to so I'm out so much and I do podcasts with people and I do research on people and I like wear them like a second skin and I'm out and about and then I've got my friends and I'm listening to what's happening in their lives and I think what I've realized is I had so much noise a lot of the time that I wasn't checking in with me and this has been a nice opportunity to go what do I want moving forward where do I like how do I want to live my life and so I'm thankful for lockdown in some ways for that opportunity yeah, me too. I mean, I really wanted to sort my hair out. I know it's quite a kind of shallow thing for a lot of people, but, you know, I was, I've got androgenic alopecia, my hair is thinning, and I just thought, I want to get this sorted out. I've got this time. I can actually dedicate some time to it. 
And it's been unbelievable for me, the confidence that's come from it, the knowledge that I'm passing to other people, because I wasn't going to talk about it at first, I was just going to do it on the sly, <laughs> um, and then disappear with big hair. Um, and then daily people said, oh my God, your hair's looking so much better, and look, it looks so thick, and blah, blah, blah. And it's just lovely. What are you so doing? I think I'm using, oh, I'm using so much stuff. I'm using minoxidil drops. Yeah. Um, prescribed by Annabelle Kingsley, who's my trichologist. I've just had a video conference with her a month ago. My hair's looking so much better. I love her. She's I think as well, lovely. she's so passionate about it. Yeah. And looking at the history of Philip Kingsley and what he did, what he achieved with his brand, it's so fortunate that I've got access to her mm. because when I contacted Philip Kingsley, they could have easily just kind of palmed me off and, and said, you know, it's locked down. You have to wait until the clinic reopens. Yeah. But they weren't. They were quite proactive. And they're like, no, we're going to make this work for our clients and we're going to work, work work around it. And they started doing Skype consultations and whatnot. So I fair play to them for kind of putting the customer first. Yeah. And yeah, I'm just delighted. I'm still going with it. I've still got, I think I'm only a month and a half in. Uh, but I'm doing a lot. I'm using a lot of different products. Yeah. I think I'll do like a little before and after when it comes to its end. Yeah, you're, I think you're about two or three weeks ahead of me, but I've definitely, like, the quality of my hair is so... Yeah, it does look really glossy, your hair. Thank you. And then I colour in my scalp still with Colour Wow. Oh, yeah, it looks amazing. <laughs> Listeners, You've I'm literally them. showing my head to Lorna. <laughs> she is. <laughs> but um, it, so it's really interesting, though, because I do think a lot more people experience hair thinning and hair loss than I think we maybe realised. Totally. And unbelievable, the amount of people that have messaged and said, thanks for talking about this, because there's so much stigma around it. Um, you know me, like, I'm really honest, so I've got nothing to hide. So I'm not ashamed of it at all. It's just a thing. Um, so yeah, so I hope it makes a difference, because I feel so much better. I'm stopped wearing hair extensions. I do wear hair extensions, but just not as much. Mm. Um, and I don't feel like now, if I want to nip to Tesco, I have to put my hair extensions in. So that's a nice place to be. I'm so pleased for you. Yeah, I'm. Oh, I'm absolutely delighted. Like so chuffed about it. Keep smiling. That's really <laughs> wonderful. I'm very aware that I've taken up a lot of your time, but I just do want to say, this has been a really valuable conversation. Thank you. I've really yeah. taken a lot from it, and um, I know we met each other at the end of last year, and we do have mutual friends in common. This is our first like proper conversation, and I've really yeah. enjoyed it. So thank you so much. Yeah, I've loved it. Uh, you're such an easy person to talk to, so it's just been really cathartic. You are. When you did Robin's podcast at the beginning of lockdown, I phoned. I was on the phone to him. I said, "She's just got a voice that I could like. I could listen to that all day." And he said, "That's what <laughs> you two have that in common. You've both got like." Yeah, he's, he's lovely to listen to, isn't he? Mm. I feel like that about you. I think when I first met you, like last year, I said to you, "I've just been listening to your podcast." <laughs> so I've been listening to it, getting ready. You've got such a calm tone. Oh. Yeah. No, I'm just honoured that you wanted me on, so thank you. No, I have for a while, so this is really good. And um, the only thing about lockdown is it's when you have a conversation like this, obviously I've had a great time, but it's that it's that conversation that can, when you get off the line, you feel a bit frustrated because you think, I know if we'd done this in person. Yeah, it like It would have been, I think it would have. We would have been rosé. There would have been rosé and body language, which I think is 80, well, I don't know if it's 80%, but there's a lot of non-verbal. So I, I'm laying it out here now. You're invited to come back, and I'm sure listeners will agree. Oh, that's lovely. Well, you, I'll always come back. 
petitions around too. We'll obviously put the links to you in the show notes, listeners. So please do go to those show notes and find all the links to your social, to your In the Star collections and everything else that you've got going on. But honestly, Lorna, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. I do hope you enjoyed that conversation. If you would like to get in touch with me, simply email me at thebeautypodcast at gmail.com or slide into my DMs on Instagram and Twitter where I am at Emma Guns. You can also chat to me and thousands of other listeners of this podcast in the closed Facebook group. All you have to do is go to the show notes, which can be found wherever it is that you are streaming and downloading this episode and click the link to join. Answer a couple of questions, agree to the forum rules and there you will be welcomed with open arms by me and all of your podcast friends. Thank you so much for listening. I will see you on the next one. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.